0: Well, uh, any children here, kindergarten to second grade, can head off to Children's Church if they wish. You can find that through the door over here by the piano. Kids are uh, dismissed to Children's Church. You know, one of the things I've, I guess like I can say I've kind of prided myself on as a, a preacher. I don't know if it's right to do that, but I've sort of made it my business to make sure that when I stand up to preach to you on a Sunday morning, I'm preaching something fresh from God's Word that He's laid on my heart. So, you know, I don't borrow other people's sermons. I don't go to sermondownloads.com and, you know, like, oh, that looks like a good one, and just kind of change a few details to make it sound like I said it. Uh, I also don't preach sermons that I've preached before, uh, with one exception. There's one sermon that I have preached uh, twice here in this church, and that I'm going to preach again this morning. And I don't preach this sermon because it's like my best sermon, or or, or the greatest sermon, or anything like that. I I just preach it because I think it addresses a a huge, significant issue in the Christian life that we all wrestle with. It's an issue that is huge for pastoral ministry and for church life. Uh, It is an issue that I think we all need to reflect on from a text in the Bible that really nails it it's so profoundly. And the text I want to preach on this morning is the book of Job. And the issue it addresses is the problem of suffering in the Christian life, the problem of the innocent sufferer. Why is it that Christians go through fiery trials? If God loves us, if we are His children, especially as New Testament Christians, if, if we have been bought with the blood of Jesus and God has covenanted Himself with us in Christ, why would we go through the kinds of trials we go through? And I, I wrestle with this as a pastor. This is not an abstraction for me. This is stuff I see on a regular basis. Why do people that I love, and that I know love the Lord Jesus and are serving Him, why do they lose their jobs? And why are they then out of work for a year, and teeter on the brink of bankruptcy, or sometimes go over that brink? And why do they then sometimes get another job, which is awful and they hate it and they're miserable and they thought, Lord, I thought you were leading me and then I, you know, and they they feel like they're sputtering around in their career. Uh, Why do people who love the Lord have serious health issues or debilitating chronic ailments um, when there's people out there who are just flaunting God's laws and they seem to live long, healthy, happy lives with no problems? And why should a Christian come down with something awful at age 40 when other people don't? It doesn't make sense. Um, wh- why do uh, Christians who are trying to <coughs> lead godly lives in their families and live as a Christian wife or a Christian husband, why do they have spouses who flake out and you know, cheat on them or uh, you know, leave them or abuse them? I mean, why does that happen? What, why is it that you try to raise your kids in a Christian way and teach them the Word of God and then all kinds of things overtake your children. They, they just seem to go the wrong direction. That doesn't seem to make sense. If God is our God and we're trying to honor Him and He loves us and we love Him, you don't think these things should happen. Why do to Christians uh, who are single, who are trying to honor the Lord with their lives and remain pure and, and follow God as a single person, why doesn't God answer their prayer and bring a spouse into their life if that's what they're seeking? Why do Christian couples, why are they unable to have children? You know, they want to honor God with their children, so why, 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 why? And here's the last one. This is the one that I wrestle with probably the most. Why should I, as a pastor, ever, ever have to do a funeral for the child or grandchild of a believer? It, maybe you get that. Please send me an email. I don't get it. I've never understood that as a pastor. Why, as a pastor, should I ever have to do a funeral for the child or grandchild of a believer if there's a good God who loves us and we're his children? In fact, I think this is the thorniest problem for Christianity. I, I think the biggest conundrum, every worldview has, a, has problems. I think this is the biggest one, is the problem of suffering for God's people among the Christian faith. It, it's like Edground posed The Raven. It just sits in the room and it won't leave. <laughs> you try to shoo it away and it just goes, wah, never more, you know, and no one not leave. This problem stares us in the face. And so uh, we come to the ultimate test case of this problem. This is why I said I think this is an issue we need to come to. I feel like I need to preach this sermon every three or four years, not because it's the greatest sermon in the world, but just because this issue is so pertinent to our lives. It's something that we wrestle with. And Job addresses it so profoundly. And so, turn to Job, if you haven't already. Job chapter 1. It's on page 496 in your Bibles. A few Bibles. Job chapter 1. So, who is this guy named Job? It says, In the land of Uz, Job chapter 1, verse 1, Uz is scholars think is probably Edom, which would have been somewhere in the uh, Arabian Peninsula. <clears throat> in the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. So the first thing that we want to know about Job is that he is a blameless man. Now that does not mean, by the way, that he, I don't think it means that he was sinless, that he never sinned, he never did anything wrong. The scriptures tell us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But what I think it means is that relative to the rest of humanity, Job was amazing. That on the moral landscape of humanity, Job rises over the horizon like a huge Mount Fuji. He, he just dominates the landscape. He, he stands out like a man among boys, like a you know great oak among those saplings, morally speaking. And here's Job, he's blameless, relatively speaking. And notice that God blessed his life, First 2. He had seven sons and three daughters. So in an agrarian culture, that was a sign of great blessing. He had uh, 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, and a large number of servants. So remember, in those days, that kind of livestock was your capital. That was the capital you had. And So he, this guy is insanely wealthy. He is, he's one of the richest men. And so that's why it says, the last sentence there in verse 3, he was the greatest man among all the people of the East. He was this an enormous figure. So there's this guy, godly, blameless, and God has blessed his life with amazing wealth and prosperity and riches. But now the suffering comes into the story. And that starts in chapter 1, verse 6. The scene shifts from earth to heaven from the land of Uz to the court of God. And it says in verse 6, One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. And the Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, From roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. Again, relatively speaking, on earth. He is blameless and upright. A man who fears God and shuns evil. So again, it's reiterated. God is saying, hey, check out Job. This guy is head and shoulders above the rest. He really loves me. He's really a blameless man. And just keep reiterating that, because that's going to come important later in the story. But look what Satan says. Verse 9, just Job, fear God for nothing, Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You've blessed the work of his hand so that his flocks and herds are spread out throughout the land. You know, Hey God, the reason Job loves you is because you you bribed him. Yeah, it's easy to love God when you're king of the mountain. (laughs) So of course he loves you. Verse 11, But stretch out your hand. Strike everything he has and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then. Everything he has is in your hands. But on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. So God allows Satan to afflict Job's possessions. Not his person, but his possessions. And so in one fell day, verse 13, one day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby and the Sabians attacked and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword and I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. And then another servant comes in verses, in verse 16 and says, they've come, they've taken the sheep or the sheep have been destroyed. And then verse uh, 17, another servant comes and says, the camels are destroyed. So in other words, all of his capital is eviscerated in one fell swoop. He goes from uber rich to totally broke. And then the worst thing is verse 18. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them and they are dead. And I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. Now, this is like a tsunami of suffering. You know, who's ever suffered like this in one day to lose all of your wealth and all of your children i mean this is the kind of stuff that would just make you black out you would you would be gone I mean, there would be no hope i mean you would you'd go into despair you'd fall into a dark depression and job does grieve but notice what he also does verse 20 at this job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head those were signs of grief in the ancient world and then he fell to the ground in worship. And said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. But it gets worse. Here's phase two of the testing. So now Satan comes back, and God's like, See? Told you. <laughs> He's a man of integrity. And look how Satan responds. Look at chapter 2, verse 4. Skin for skin, Satan replied, a man will give all he has for his own life. But stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well then. He's in your hands, but you must spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the top of his head then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. And his wife said to him, are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. Thanks, honey. That's really helpful. I appreciate it. I guess all Job's got left is this woman and she's like, curse God and die. It's like, she's... You know, covered with sores. I, I don't know what kind of like painful illnesses you've ever had, but have you ever been covered with sores from your sole to your feet and the top of your head? I mean, ah! I remember the first time I got poison ivy. I, I grew up, in, as you know, in, in the desert, and we didn't have poison ivy there. We had scorpions and rattlesnakes, but so no poison ivy. So the first time I... And sometimes when you get it for the first time, you have a really big reaction your first, very first time. And I was out doing some gardening for my father-in-law, and I must have gotten to a batch of it and didn't know it. And I just, like, puffed up. I was, you know, itchy and all the oozy stuff and my, my skin was just itchy and I, I had to take drugs for it because I was just, I was laying around in misery. And one, one day I snapped. I, uh, I went to the, the, the tub or the shower or something. I, I forget which it was. I turned on the water though and I put my arm under the water and I took a comb. <sighs> and I just went, Aah! It felt so good. Because you're, you're so miserable. And that's how Job was. He's totally covered with swords. He's just like, and he's got pottery. He's just scraping himself because he's so miserable. Just the pain and agony of this. He's got nothing left. Everything's taken from him. He can't even be comfortable in his own skin. How horrible. This is the worst suffering upon the most godly man in his day. And notice how he says to his wife, though, verse 10, he replied, You're talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? And in all this Job did not sin in what he said. Now there, people, is the final piece of the puzzle to set up the whole problem that we're going to delve into. So the, the whole stage has been set. We have Job, the innocent sufferer. We have Job, rather I should say, the godly man who is experiencing the worst imaginable suffering. And here's the worst part. It has come from the hand of God. Now, I know some of you just had a thought. You just thought, no it didn't. It came from Satan. Satan did that to him, not God. Well, yes, Satan was the instrument. But God allowed it. God planned it. God was sovereign over it. Notice again verse 10 of chapter 2. He says, Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? So he says, God has sent this to me. And it says, in all of this, Job did not sin in what he said. So if we can just say, well, God didn't do this. That was Satan. That was a, a spiritual attack. And Satan did that, but not God. God is sovereign over all things. The devil is God's devil. And so this is the, the Christian problem. is that is that God, we believe in a sovereign, good God. So why is there suffering and misery? And, and why... Do the innocent especially suffer? Why do God's people suffer? You know, And you're like, oh, I don't like that. Right, that's the problem. Now you're feeling the problem. Now you're experiencing that knot that we have to somehow find a way to untie. And that's what the rest of the book of Job is about. It's a series, it's a cycle of poetic discourses of ancient, uh, perhaps Edomite poetry in which... Uh, Job and his friends talk to each other trying to figure out how any of this makes sense. How can there be a good, loving God who loves His people and would allow them to experience great suffering when His people haven't done anything wrong? And Job is the ultimate test case for that. And so, that's what we move into in in chapter 3. And all the way to chapter 3 to 37, I'm not going to read the whole thing, obviously, but I just kind of want to give you a sense of the flow of chapter 3 to 37. And really, there's two uh, debates or two battles or two uh, fencing matches going on in the story of Job verses chapters 3 to chapter 37. And one is a fencing match between Job and his three friends. That's the main part of those chapters. Uh, in fact, here's his three friends. Look at chapter 2, verse 11. Here's the three friends. When Job's three friends, Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Naamathite, heard about all the troubles that had come upon him, they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. Have you ever been with someone who's just grieving and there's nothing you can do except put your arms around him and hug him? There's nothing you can say. That's how bad this was, except seven days of it. Just sitting there with this man experiencing unspeakable misery in his life because he's lost everything, including his own health. And there he sits. And then the debate begins. And essentially, like I said, chapters 3 to 37 are a cycle of discourses, very poetic, very stylized, where Job and his buddies are arguing with each other about why this has happened. And if I could grossly oversimplify his friends' positions, they basically argue one point over and over. Their, their essential line of argument goes like this. Alright, Job, here's what's happening. I'll explain this to you. God is just. He always does what's right. And so he always blesses the righteous. He always punishes the sinners. You are going through great suffering, you know, ergo, therefore, you must have done a great sin. So, dude, fess up. You know, We're your friends. Just us, man. You can tell us what it is. It's okay. Just confess your sin, Job, and God will forgive you, and it'll be cool. God, I mean, God will heal you. We know He's a merciful God. So, Job, whatever you did to bring this about, just, you know, it's okay. Tell us what it is. That's their basic line of argument throughout the whole thing. They have a very mechanistic kind of understanding of how God works. They've taken a general principle, which is that God blesses the righteous and he condemns the wicked. Certainly a principle that in the very end, we know as believers, looking at the book of Revelation, in the end that principle will be finally upheld on the last judgment day. You know, when Christ returns, the righteous, those who are in Christ, will be forever blessed. So that even their sufferings in this life will somehow become part of a blessing. And in that final day, those who've rejected Christ will be forever condemned and judged under God's wrath so that even the blessings in this life will seem like curses. So we know that that will happen then. But for now, it doesn't always work out that way, does it, in our lives? But Job's friends had this theory that it worked out in a kind of mechanistic way. And so they looked at Job and they're saying, you know, elementary, my dear Watson. We can see why you're suffering. Because you did something wrong. Of course, that's the only answer. So tell us what it is. So let me just give you some snippets. Uh, Look at chapter 5. We're going to jump around Job now, so get your fingers hot. We're going to flip, we're going to jump all over. We're not going to read the whole thing, just bits and pieces. First of all, listen to Eliphaz. He says in chapter 5, verse 17, Blessed is the man whom God corrects, so do not despise the discipline of the Almighty. Job, you're being disciplined. You're being corrected for whatever you did that was wrong. Uh, or look at um, chapter 8, verses 1 to 7. Here's Bildad the Shuhite. Good old Bildad the Shuhite. Look at what he says. He says, verse 2. How long will you say such things? Your words are a blustering wind. Does God pervert justice? Does the Almighty pervert what is right? Does God ever break away from this pattern of He always blesses the righteous and always curses the wicked? Look at verse 4. Get this. When your children sinned against God, He gave them over to the penalty of their sin. Oh, wow. Counseling 101. Don't say that, alright? What, <laughs> Dude. But if you look to the All God and plead with the Almighty, if you're pure and upright, even now He will rouse Himself on your behalf. Confess your sin, be innocent, and God will save you. Or look at, uh, Job chapter 11, verses 1 to 6. Here's Zophar. Same line of argument. Then Zophar the Naamathite replied, Are all these words to go unanswered? Is this talker to be vindicated? Will your idle talk reduce men to silence? Will no one rebuke you when you mock? You say to God, my beliefs are flawless. I am pure in your sight. Oh, how I wish that God would speak. That He would open His lips against you and disclose to you the secrets of wisdom. For true wisdom has two sides. Know this, God has even forgotten some of your sin. I wish God would just talk to you, and you would shut up, and you would find out what you did wrong. And hey, look, even now God's forgiving some of it. So just, you know, go with it. Confess your sin, Job. And so again, they have this very mechanistic uh, kind of mathematical formula that they follow. If there is suffering, it means you sinned. If uh, there is blessing, it means that you are good. And, And you know, this finds its way into Christianity today. Uh, if you listen to a lot of the prosperity gospel teachers, uh, a, a lot of some of which is sort of in part of Pentecostalism, not all but some, and, and there's this kind of idea that goes along with it that if you have enough faith, and if you're good, God will bless you, and He'll bless your life. And if you don't have, you know, blessing right now, that's because you haven't uh, loved the Lord enough, or had enough faith, or done whatever or given to this televangelist, or whatever it is you're supposed to do that's going to ignite the faith, uh, the blessings to come into your life. And so they keep saying, Job, what did you do to sin? What sin did you do to bring this on? And Job's point is, I didn't do anything. I'm telling you guys, I'm innocent. I'm innocent. And he keeps hammering on that. So Job gives it right back. And this is good stuff, people. This is like, a, this is like WWF Smackdown. They're, they're wrestling. They're arguing. They're going back and forth. I mean, check it out. Look at chapter 16, verses 1-5. to It's a steel cage match here. Look at Job. He gives it right back to him. Then Job replied, Job chapter 16, verse 1, I have heard many things like these. Miserable comforters are you all. Will your long-winded speeches never end? What ails you that you keep on arguing? I also could speak like you if... You were in my place. I could make fine speeches against you and shake my head at you. But my mouth would encourage you. Comfort would come from my lips would bring you relief. And then look at chapter 6. Go to, flip back to chapter 6, verses 24. Unfollowing. This is where in Job chapter 6, verse 24, Job is one of these examples. He's contending for his innocence. So again, Job's response is, Guys, I know what you're saying. And I know there's an element of truth in it, but I'm telling you, in this situation, I didn't sin. Yes, you did. No, I didn't. Yes, you did. No, I didn't. 30 chapters of that. And Here's a for instance. Look at verse 24. Teach me, he says to them, and I'll be quiet. Hey, show me where I've been wrong. If you guys know I've sinned, then fine. Tell me what it is. I'm open to hearing from you. He says, verse 25, how painful are honest words. But what do your arguments prove? Do you mean... To correct what I say? And treat the words of a despairing man as wind? You would even cast lots for the fatherless and barter away your friend. But now, be so kind as to look at me. Would I lie to your face? Relent. Do not be unjust. Reconsider, for my integrity is at stake. Is there any wickedness on my lips? Can my mouth not discern malice? Guys, show me what I did. If you're so sure that this is a punishment from God, show me what I did. And so they go round and round, back and forth. Now, we as the reader, we know that Job is right. We know that Job hasn't done anything to deserve this, because we read that in chapters 1 and 2. It's very clearly marked out. So that battle is going around and around and around. But at the same time, there's another battle emerging there's another debate, another uh, fencing match that's sort of going on concurrently. And this one is not between Job and his friends. It's between Job and God. And basically what it is, is Job is saying, God, I want you to give me an answer for this because this doesn't make any sense. And whenever he does, it drives his friends crazy and then he has to argue with them But then he goes back to God. So it's this, those, three, those chapters are just this kind of back and forth dynamic interplay between these different positions. And so Job starts arguing with God and essentially he's saying to God, God, why is this happening? Could you just please tell me? And in our dark moments of wrestling, we've said to God ourselves, I suspect, God, I do not get this. I love you, God. I've tried to follow you. I've tried to honor You with my family. I've tried to honor You with my, my treasure and my time. Lord, I've, I've served on so many committees. I mean, doesn't that count for anything? Uh, you know, and, and I, I love You. I go to church. I mean, Lord, I'm Yours. I'm not one of the people who are against You. I'm for You, God. So why is this tidal wave of trouble washing my life away like a sandcastle? This makes no sense to me, God. And that's what Job prays. But the way Job does it, and this is what's really kind of interesting and audacious, is that Job, he has this crazy plan. He wants to take God to court. (laughs) That's his plan. He starts fantasizing about a trial. He's like, I want to go to court with God. That's what I want to do. I want to put God on the witness stand. I want to be the prosecutor, and I'm going to prosecute him. I'm going to say, all right, God, show me the evidence for why this is happening to me, I, I thought of that movie, A Few Good Men. You seen that movie with uh, Tom Cruise is like the young whippersnapper uh, prosecutor, and he decides to put on trial Jack Nicholson, who is the, the decorated Marine general, who you know you just don't put him on trial. But in this kind of crazy gutsy move, he puts Jack Nicholson in the witness stand, and I think that's what Job wants to do. He wants to take the great God and put him on the witness stand and be like, all right, God. You show me what I've done to deserve this. Go ahead, you prove it. Argue your case, fine. And and at first, it's just kind of a fantasy that Job has. He's kind of toying with it. He's not really serious. So look at chapter 9, verse 14. We'll see how the. At this point, he's just kind of thinking, like, what would it be like if I could argue with God? And he's like, yeah, this is ridiculous. What a stupid thought. Chapter 9, verse 14. How then can I dispute with him? How can I find words to argue with him? Though I were innocent, I could not answer him. I could only plead with my judge for mercy. Even if I summoned him and he responded, I do not believe he would give me a hearing. He would crush me with a storm and multiply my wounds for no reason. I mean, I couldn't argue with this guy. But then, as the story progresses, Job gets more desperate. And you know, desperate measures for desperate times. He's becoming more desperate. And now he starts formulating his case. He's moving from just thinking about it to starting to put his case together. Look at chapter thirteen, verse thirteen. There's a progression here. It's, and again, sorry for the jumping around, but I'm just trying to give you the snippets of the flow of the argument. Chapter thirteen, verse thirteen. Job says to his friends, Keep silent and let me speak. Then let me come, then let come to me what may. I don't care what happens anymore. I'm so miserable. I mean, what what can I lose? What do I have to lose? Verse 14, why do I put myself in jeopardy and take my life in my hands? Though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. I will surely defend my ways to his face. Indeed, this will turn out for my deliverance. For no godless man would dare come before him. In fact, I'm so certain I'm innocent that I know that by challenging God, this is his kind of weird logic, I'm going to be okay. Because only an innocent person can do this. Verse 12, listen to my words. Listen carefully to my words. Let your ears take in what I say. Now that I've prepared my case, I know I'll be vindicated. Can anyone bring charges against me? If so, I'll be silent and die. Only grant me these two things. He has two prayer requests from God. Here's the first prayer request. Verse 21, withdraw your hand far from me and stop frightening me with your terrors. God, make the suffering stop. And then verse 22, I want to talk to you, God. Then summon me, and I will answer. Or let me speak, and you reply. How many wrongs and sins have I committed? Come down here and show me what I did. So interesting, isn't it? Job is operating from the same theological system as his friends. He also has a very mechanistic view of God. Except the difference is, he says, I haven't sinned, therefore the formula doesn't work. In their case, they're assuming... He has sinned. And so Job's, that's why he's tormented, because he thinks about God the same way they do. And so finally, um, just turn to Job 29. This is where the whole thing reaches its climax. I'm not going to read this, but just want to point out chapters 29 to 31 are the the final argument. This is where God, uh, rather, Job formally presents his case. You know, in every good courtroom movie, there's always that scene at the end where they make their closing arguments. And then after they make the arguments, they're like, and the prosecution rests, you know. So this is Job, his final argument, and then he's going to rest his case. Whether God listens or not, he doesn't care. He's just going to put it out there. So chapter 29 is a detailed poetic litany of how blessed his life used to be. Chapter 30 is a detailed poetic litany of how crummy his life has become through suffering. So this is where I was, this is what I've become. And then chapter 31 is a, an extended oath in which Job raises his hands and is basically like, put my hand on the Bible and I swear I have not done anything wrong. And he lists all the things he could have done wrong. And he's like, I didn't do that, I didn't do that, I didn't do that, I didn't do that. So he's making his case to God. I was here. You've sent me down here. I didn't do anything wrong. So, okay God, tell me what I did. And that's Job's case. It's, it's wild. It's outrageous. It's just like, <laughs> you just lost a guy. How audacious and crazy. But you know what's really crazy? You know what's really audacious in this story? Is in chapter 38. God shows up. (laughs) God actually comes. God answers His request to come and speak with Him. Chapter 38, verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm. Anyone hear that lightning last night? Boom! Out of the storm, the voice of God speaks. He says, Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. So the court is convened, and suddenly Job is on the witness stand. (laughs) And God's the prosecutor and the judge, and the jury, and the bailiff, and the whole judicial system. God's like, all right, we'll go to court, but it's not going to work out the way you thought, Job. Get in the stand. i got some questions for you. But then what follows, and I think this is the part of Job that, when I've studied it, it, it took me the longest time to really get my mind around, is that what follows in chapters 38 through 41 is God's speech. But what's so interesting is, God, in this speech, never addresses at all the issues that Job has brought up. He never discusses... Innocence and judgment, and he never says to Job, "Well, look, I was testing you because Satan came to me, and this whole thing we had." He doesn't do any of that. God never talks about the issue at hand. God never explains the mystery to Job. Instead, what you get in chapters 38 to 41 is it's like a cross between the Discovery Channel and Animal Planet. It's weird. God just goes into this big thing about creation. He starts talking about all the stuff he made. And he just starts questioning Job. Now Job, were you there when I did this? And were you there when I made that? Again, I don't want to read the whole thing. I wish we could, but let me just give you snippets. Again, get your Bibles open. Let's go fast through this. Chapter 38, verse 4. Were you there when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Oh, Surely you know who stretched a measuring line across it. Or or look at uh, verse 22. Talking about the weather. Have you entered the storehouses of snow or seen the storehouses of the hail, which I reserve for times of trouble for days of war and battle? What is the way to the place where lightning is dispersed? Or the place where the east winds are scattered over the earth? Do you know anything about how weather works and how amazing it is what I do? Or he talks about the constellations in verse 31. Can you bind the beautiful Pleiades? Can you loose the cords of Orion? Can you bring forth the constellations in their seasons? Or lead out the bear with its cubs. Do you know the laws of the heavens? Can you set up God's dominion over the earth? And then he moves to animals. And this is one of the things about ostriches and hippos. And Look at verse 39. Do you hunt the prey for the lioness and satisfy the hunger of the lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in the thicket? Who provides food for the raven when its young cry out to God and wander about for lack of food? Do you know how this all works? What do you know? It's amazing this world that God has made. Yesterday, I, uh, it was my wife's birthday. She turned 29 again. And uh, we, um, <laughs> we we went uh, on a whale watch. It was great. and In fact, it was a really good one. Like even the... Uh, the people on the boat were saying, like, oh, this is, you guys were lucky. This was a great day for whale watching. There are whales all around us and, you know, these amazing animals out there on the stow wagon. And they're, you know, rising up and chasing fish. And, and there's this one, you know, this one thing they were doing I really loved is not only would they sort of come up and try to corral the fish and then dive back down, but sometimes they'd lay on the surface and do these things called kick feeding where they just sort of open their mouths and kind of, you know, kick along and try to scoop things up. And they're doing this kick fitting. And, and suddenly, just like out of the water right in front of you, this it, it looked like this piano here would pop up. And it was just its head, you know, just the front of its mouth. And this huge smile, you know, would come up. And you see the whale just sitting there on the surface. And I was, you know, and eventually they're like, all right, we have to turn the boat around. And I was so bummed. You know, my wife and I had the same reaction. I, I could sit there all day and just marvel at these amazing animals that God made and just put out in the ocean. Why? Because, I don't know. He wanted to. He's a creator. He's an artist. He made whales. It's just astounding. And you realize, you just feel so small. You're just so in awe at the world that God has made. And I think that's what God is trying to say to Job. God doesn't even bring up Job's case. He's just like, Job, uh, you don't even know the first thing you're talking about. (laughs) What do you know? In other words, I think what God is saying through this litany of animals and constellations in nature is He's trying to say to Job, 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 I am God. God is God. That's the point. God is God. He's not a man. He's not a woman. He's not someone we can debate with. He's, he's our Maker. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. You know, think about the complexity of a single cell and how amazing that little microscopic organism is and and the amazing structures within it. It's so wonderfully complex that there's whole disciplines. Microbiology is just dedicated to trying to figure out the complexity of a cell. Why do we think that if God can make that cell out of his own imagination and power, that Therefore, we could understand it if, if we could say, well, God, come down here and explain why I'm suffering. It's like, who are we? How could we even begin to understand His thoughts and His ways? He's like, Joe, I'm God. I love what it says in uh, Psalm 135. I know that our God is great, that our Lord is greater than all gods. The Lord does whatever pleases Him. In the heavens and on earth and in the seas and in all their depths. Or Isaiah chapter 45. Woe to him who quarrels with his maker, to him who is but a potsherd among the potsherds among the ground. Does the clay say to the potter, What are you making? He's the potter. We're the clay. He's the creator. We're the creation. You know, we all say, Oh, do you believe in the sovereignty of God? Oh, yeah, I believe God is sovereign. But it's like, Do you really believe in the sovereignty of God? We're always like, yeah, I believe God is sovereign. Well, but. You know, but free will, or but this, or but that. No, no, no buts. He's sovereign. He's absolutely sovereign, and he's free to do as he pleases. And we don't like that because <laughs> it doesn't fit into our rationalistic ways of thinking. In our, You've got to explain this to me because I'm the center of all knowing. You know, right? I think, therefore I am. That's what has to start with me. And God's like, you exist because I exist because I made you. <laughs> you know who you think you are. It's like in uh, Romans chapter nine when, when Paul is laying out the very difficult to understand doctrine of predestination and election, and uh, and you know he raises the objection. People are going to say, well, that's not fair. And what's what's Paul's response to that? Who are you, O oh man, to talk back to God? <laughs> who are we? I'll never forget this uh, story that I had a professor in the seminary told, and I've always loved this story, but I think I've shared it with you before, but it's worth telling again. Uh, I guess my professor had a, has a couple kids, and when his kids were little, like two or whatever, they were in the crib, and the crib was next to the window and it had Venetian blinds, and they put the baby down, and pretty soon they heard this rattling around, they went in and baby was playing with the Venetian blinds. And so mommy said, no, 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 and baby, you know, went down and left the room, and of course, you know, a few minutes later, <laughs> the baby's doing it again, so mommy went in and said, no, 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 and, and finally, you know, they did this a couple times, finally baby went to sleep, or so they thought, and uh, so mommy snuck into the room quietly after baby was asleep and started fixing the blinds, and guess what she heard from the crib? <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> That's us from the crib. No, 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 God. You can't do that, God. You can't predestine people because that doesn't make sense to me. I can't have this suffering because, you know, whatever. And and it's like that kid. And, and, you know, God's like, hello, I'm God. And we don't like that. I don't like it because I want God to be able to be manageable and comprehensible and domesticated. But our God is great. Great. And his, his ways are beyond comprehension. And He brings us to a place of humility before His majesty. And that is where Job lands. Job lands in the right spot. It's in chapter 42. Here's Job's response. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that You can do all things. No plan of Yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my counsel without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you will answer me. My ears, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. He's humbled before God. And what is he repenting of? Is he repenting of some secret sin that brought about the calamity? No. He's repenting of his demanding attitude that has failed to stand in wonder and awe at the awesomeness of God that he has now seen. And so we need to humble ourselves before God. But lest we think that this portrait of God is one of a tyrannical despot, of a a random puppet master who just jerks people's lives around because he can, and who cares, you can't say anything. Unless we think of God as some sort of just evil, arbitrary being. Remember that the sovereign God is also the God who shows up. He shows up as He loves us. And where we often want answers to the questions in our lives and explanations, God doesn't give us those things, but He does show up and He says, trust me. He showed up for Joe. He didn't have to do that, but He loved him and He showed up. And ultimately, God has shown up for us in the person of Jesus. If you ever doubt the goodness of God because of circumstances in your life, just look to the cross. That God showed up in the person of Jesus. You know, I said Job is the ultimate innocent sufferer. Not true. He's the penultimate innocent sufferer. The ultimate innocent sufferer was God in Jesus. That our God has taken on the greatest injustice on the cross. And He did it to reconcile us to Himself. And so no, I cannot even begin to understand the ways of God, but I can understand what He's shown me, which is Jesus, and that He loves me, and that He's with me, even in the midst of the trials that He sends that I don't understand. He's with me in the midst of the trials He sends that I don't understand. And so He calls forth not knowledge from us, but faith. And He says, will you trust me based on what you do know, and based on the way I have loved you in Christ? Will you trust me? Let's pray.